The passage we read together is just is just so rich, so reassuring. We bless our Heavenly Father because it is according to his mercy that he has caused us to be born again, not to something that is dead, but to something that is alive, a living hope, not through a God that is dead, but a God that has risen from the dead. And that hope is to an an imperishable inheritance that is kept for us. And how is it kept for us? It is undefiled. It is unfading. It is kept in heaven by God's power being guarded for us through the faith that he has given to us. It is a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. That doesn't mean we don't have some understanding of salvation now. It means in its fullness, our salvation will be understood as we stand before the Lord in heaven. Until then, it is kept for us, and we know it as much as we can here in this world. So this is the Lord who has done all of these things for the likes of us. So let's go to him now in prayer. Lord, who are we that you should bestow upon us such richness, such an extensive and and overwhelming amount of grace and mercy that you would be the cause of our salvation? For we're the ones that have offended you. We are the ones that are sinful. We are the ones that stand apart from you. and, And you come and you find us. And you grab hold of us and you draw us unto yourself and you give us this salvation through the work of someone else. Not our own work, but through the work of Christ. What great love is this, that we should know these things. What care you take with the likes of us, that we who have offended you would know your mercy to such a great extent. Lord, you have called us here on this day that we might be reminded of this, that we might be able to look into your word, look into our own hearts, and be reminded of how we don't deserve what you give to us, but yet you give it to us anyway. It is out of this great love that you have for your son and your son's obedience that he gave his life for us, that we might know grace and mercy and love, and peace, that these things might be multiplied down to us, that we might give them away to those around us, Lord. For you don't give us these things just to hold on to them and keep them for ourselves. So, Lord, we give you praise for the safe return of all those who went to the Dominican and the fact that they were able to give away that grace that you have given to them, to use the gifts that you had blessed them with, 
and provide for others, to demonstrate the love that you had placed in their hearts, the love of Jesus Christ. Lord, we come today with a variety of things on our own hearts, a variety of issues, perhaps things that we struggle with, things that await us in the future, whether they be issues or decisions or uh, relationships that we're struggling with or particular issues. Perhaps they are issues of health and, and physical things. Lord, we, we lay them before you today at your throne of grace, for you call us to come right to this throne and put them before you, trusting ourselves, our desires, our hearts, and all that we face to you, to seek your wisdom and, and to know your peace in the midst of these struggles and storms and joys and whatever they may be. So, Lord, we lay all that we are before you today that we might be reminded of your care for us and of the path that you lay out before us. Lord, this has been done through the work of Christ, that you have done this, that he has come into this world and given his life, that we might know these things, that they might be made real to our hearts, that we might live them out. So we come to you, Lord, in his name, and we pray the prayer that he taught us as we say it together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. The Lord has blessed us, not only from the things that we see here in Scripture, but in the real tangible things of this world. So we have the opportunity now to worship him as we give of those things back to his purposes and his use. So I invite the ushers to come forward at this time.
You have seen fit to bless us in a variety of ways. Some of those things, Lord, have brought great joy into our lives, and others of your blessings bring struggle. But we might understand them as blessings as they cause us to to look to you, to seek after you, and to grasp on to the things of Christ even tighter. So, Lord, we pray that others might know of these blessings as well through these tithes and offerings, that the work of your church, the furthering of the kingdom, would go forward, Lord that you might be seen and heard and proclaimed in all that we do and say, and we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated.
Well, let's open our Bibles this morning to the book of Jude. Jude is that little book right before Revelation. So we better pray before we begin. Heavenly Father, will you come upon us today that in these moments together we might be reminded of your mercies and grace, that we might be reminded and see clearly your call upon your church, that we are to hold fast to the things of Christ, the things that he taught and the foundation laid by the apostles, that we might declare your glories and your truth to this world. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Now before we, we read, I want to take you back almost 12 years to the day. And uh, how many of you, this, this, I don't mean to say this was self-serving, how many of you were here the first Sunday I was here? And see, we killed off the rest of the crowd. And, 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 and it's a new one. Well, I arrived here in July, almost 12 years, 12 years ago, and it has been, I want you to understand, it's been a great privilege to be here, a great privilege. Uh, my friends who are in other churches, when I talk about this church, they go, oh, man, where'd you find those people? I said, it's the Lord's fault, okay? It's the Lord's fault. Well, when I arrived here, shortly after, if you remember the first Sunday, we, we went long the first Sunday, <laughs> and I don't think we've stopped going long since, but... Uh, it wasn't long afterwards when we began the study of the book of Matthew. And for somewhere over three years, we spent time in the book of Matthew off and on, over 119 sermons in that book alone. And since then, we have studied the books of Corinthians and Peter and Acts and Colossians and Ephesians, for Samuel, John, and about a dozen or so other portions of books in the years that we have been here. And I know sometimes that I can get off in the theological weeds because I, I like the weeds. I mean, the weeds are my friends. But not everybody appreciates some of the, the minutia and the things that I, I, I can get into if I'm not paying attention. But I look at our Sunday morning time and studying God's Word here in this fashion. If I go back in my calendar and on August 4th, 2006, I try to think of what Judy made for dinner, uh, I really don't remember, okay? But I know that I was nourished by it, and I know that my body received it, and it was good for me. Uh, now, there are some dinners that stand out, okay? Because, boy, they were really good, and, and other dinners may, maybe not so good, but I, I, I try to don't remember those. The same types of things with what we do on Sunday mornings. There are messages that you remember, and perhaps there are messages that you remember from 20 or 30 years ago because in God's providence, they were exactly what you needed at that moment. Or maybe it was in God's providence that you needed it on Monday, and you didn't even know you needed it on Sunday, but Monday you went, oh, that's why I was at church, okay? 
Now, there are some others that you want to forget, okay, when, when we really were in the weeds pretty deeply. Um, but some stand out more than others. But overall, we understand that we are fed by the Word of God, that we are nourished, and that our spiritual lives, and therefore all that we are, grow by a healthy intake of the Word. As I said, there are some Sundays that whew, just what I needed. That's why I was here. Other Sundays, you scratch your head and go, well, I, I'm sure it'll apply someday. And you're still waiting for that someday, perhaps. Well, today, we begin a new book, a book that you look at and go, 25 verses, we'll be done next week. <laughs> I, I don't think. Okay, it might take a little bit longer. And, and, and see, that's part of the, the, the excitement as we study the book of Jude. Because you go, what do you mean it's going to take longer than that? Okay. Well, once you begin to see that so much of what Jude said was, was simply surfaced because his audience filled in the blanks, because they knew what he was talking about. When he talks about um, Moses' body, well, there is, there is a whole history of what happened to Moses' body. So we're going to work on those things and see what they mean for us today. Now, if, um, for those of you who go, uh, oh, gee, Rand, we've been in the New Testament a long time. When are we going to the Old? Well, when we're done with Jude, we're going to go into the Psalms. Okay, and the richness and the beauty of the Psalms and what the Lord has for us there. So let's look at the big picture before we get into Jude. Now we've just spent several months studying from the beginning of the church age described in Acts. We call that the Acts of the Apostles. And here the end of the church age is dealt with in Jude. And that will be called the Acts of the Apostates. The Acts of the Apostates. And that really goes from... The, the end of the book of Acts and the start-up of the church until Christ returns again. That age will be full of apostates, and apostates come from within the church. And Christ is going to build his church, and the gates of hell cannot prevail against it. That does not mean that we won't face struggles from those who want to destroy the church of Jesus Christ. So let me give you some facts about the book of Jude. The name Jude in Hebrew is Judah, and in Greek it is Judas. Now we know somebody named Judas, but it's not the same guy that we know. Jude here, uh, the writer of this epistle, is the half-brother of Jesus Christ. We see this in Mark 13. We see it in or Matthew 13 in Mark chapter 6. It is the fourth shortest. There are three other shorter books, Philemon, 2 John, and 3 John are shorter than this. It is the last of the eight what we call general epistles to the church at large. Now Jude does not quote the Old Testament but he, directly, but he alludes to it, to it at least nine times. At least nine times. He alludes to Exodus, Satan's rebellion, Sodom and Gomorrah, Moses' death, Cain, Balaam, Korah, Enoch, and Adam. Now it's interesting that the book... On apostasy is written by a, a person whose name is associated with the greatest apostasy. But as I said, this is not the Judas who betrayed Christ. This is a very different man. Look at verse 1. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, brother to James. Now, if, if you were trying to make an impact on the church... 
in our humanness, you wouldn't introduce yourself this way if you were Jude. Okay? Because we know that Jude is the brother of James, James is already listed in Scripture as the half-brother of Jesus Christ. Now, we understand that Joseph and Mary had several other children besides Jesus. And Joseph was not the biological father of Jesus, but, but our Heavenly Father was. So the children that Joseph and Mary had are half-brothers and half-sisters to Jesus Christ. So if you really wanted to make an impact and come with all of your credentials up front in the epistle, you might say, Judas, half-brother of Jesus Christ, brother of James who led the church in Jerusalem. You might bring all of your guns to bear right away, but that is not the way Judas, Jude works here. He comes and says, I'm Jude, a slave of Jesus Christ. Now, those of you who have brothers and sisters and grew up, with them and grew up fighting with them or you know brothers you know how well if if you have brothers you understand you'd go and you'd beat on each other when your parents weren't around and uh, then you'd survive together Um, what do you think it was like growing up in the household with Jesus you know you think you'd say to your brother or your sister oh you just think you're perfect well, yeah, he, he was, okay? Uh, uh, don't you ever get mad at me or, you know, can't you? Let's, let's go. Come on, come on. I know mom said not to do this, but let's go do it. He wouldn't do it, okay? So you, you understand, in the early parts of the gospel, the, the, the brothers and sisters of Jesus do not believe that he is who he claims to be, that he is the Messiah. It's not until after the resurrection that we see in the first chapter of Acts that they come to faith in him. And as I said, James, his brother who writes the epistle James, becomes the leader of the church in Jerusalem. And Jude, his brother here, becomes a prominent member in the church and writes this epistle close to the end of the age, end of the first century, to lay out the dangers that the church is now facing. And and we'll see this more and more as we look through it. Now, he is the Lord's brother, but he views himself as the servant of, of his brother. Jesus is his master. He says, I'm just a bond servant to Jesus Christ. Now, what they're facing in this writing, as Jude writes it, they're facing doctrinal and moral apostasy within the church. And verses 4 through 18 lays this out for us, and we'll see this in detail in the weeks to come, but it really closely parallels the work of Peter in the book of 2 Peter. Peter wrote before Jude because Peter talks about the coming apostasy, and Jude says the apostasy is here, guys. Okay, let's face it. Let's figure out how to deal with it. The false teachers are here. And he acknowledges that Peter is an apostle as he quotes Peter. Um, back in uh, oh, 17, verses 17 and 18, he quotes Peter. Now, no mention is made of Jerusalem's destruction in 70 A.D., so we think that Jude is written just prior to the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. Now, Jude lived in a time when Christianity was under severe political attack by Rome and severe spiritual attack by the uh, Gnostic-like heresies. And I'll, I'll lay those out for us in just a moment. They were apostates, that means they taught false doctrine. They were libertines, which meant that they took, uh, obviously, liberties. Here is the gospel. But remember, the Gnostics did not believe the physical was important. 
the Gnostics believed that the spiritual was important. So they focused upon the, the spiritual, which is kind of unseen, and they really didn't care what their bodies did. They really didn't care how they acted. They just cared that they had the right knowledge, and that was, for the Gnostics, they considered it secret knowledge, so not everybody got that knowledge. So when they looked at how they lived, they really didn't care how they lived. So they would involve themselves in all kinds of debauchery, but they said we are spiritually right because we do things spiritually right. Who cares about the body? So that was kind of the Gnostics and how they uh, viewed themselves. So this is a growing issue for Jude, and uh, John addresses the Gnostics in particular in his writings. Now, except for John, who lived at the close of the century, all the other apostles, um, probably by the time of the writing of Jude, have been, uh, um, uh, you know, are, are in deep trouble, perhaps have been martyr- martyred. So Jude calls the church to fight for the truth. Okay? This is not the truth as I think about it. This is not the truth that I feel about it. He is saying you must fight for the truth that was laid out for us in Jesus Christ. He is the cornerstone. The foundation for the church has been built on the apostles. This is the objective truth of God, and we must rely on it and fight for it. So you would think that he says, okay, now we're going to fight for the truth. Let me point out to you all the errors that are coming into the church. He doesn't point out the errors that are coming into the church. He points out the apostate's character and how they live. He points out the quality, and the quality of their lives is pretty poor. The quality of their lives is simply a reflection of what they believe. So Jude is pointing out their, in a sense, their bad behavior to illustrate their bad theology. Huh, do you think that follows normally? That if your theology is bad, you're going to live out bad things. You're going to live out error. It's usually the way it works. If your theology is good and you understand Jesus Christ and his call upon your life and your life has been changed by his grace, you will strive to live out the right way to live, the calling of Jesus Christ. So let's look at verse 1. Jude addresses his audience with three terms that describe who they are, and he wants them to be reminded of this. He says, Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, brother of James, to those who are called, those who are beloved in God the Father, and those who are kept for Jesus Christ. Those are three descriptive terms that he uses. And the first one, called, is an Old Testament reminder. These are special people. Okay, you have been called out from amongst everybody else. Remember, Abraham was called out from those pagan people that he lived with to go to a land that would be his and for his descendants. So these people have been called to something much bigger than themselves, much bigger than themselves. Not only to divine blessing, they have been called by divine grace, by divine choice, that is, the Lord has called them and he has drawn them unto himself. That's what John 6 says. So when they're called, they are drawn unto the Lord. And he says to these Christians who perhaps are living in marginal areas, perhaps are facing persecution, uh, reprisals from a society that uh, has a great animosity towards godliness and godly living, he says, remember who you are. You are called by our Heavenly Father. And a call is not an invitation. 
Okay, a call is not an invitation. It is a, uh, how do I want to say, a summons. Okay, it is much more than an invitation. I'd like you to come to my party. That's one thing. When you get a piece of paper that summons you by the court, you better be there. Okay, this is even greater than that. When the Lord calls you, he grabs a hold of you and he draws you unto himself and you belong to him. And now you are ready for that which he has prepared for you to do. Not only are they called, but they are beloved in God the Father. Now, this is the only place in the New Testament where this phrase is used. Beloved in God the Father. No other place describes Christians in this way. And Jude is telling us here that we rest and trust in Jesus Christ for our salvation alone, as he is offered in the gospel, but we are beloved of our Heavenly Father. Beloved of our Heavenly Father. And finally, he says that we are kept for Jesus Christ. Now, in John 17, we'll see that Jesus says, While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by the name that you gave me. Now, believers may face struggles and we may face trials, but Jude is showing us that in the midst of the coming and present apostasy that he is dealing with, the church will always be kept safe by and for Jesus Christ. Remember Ephesians and that great passage where he says, be imitators of Christ. And then it talks about a relationship of a husband and a wife and how that reflects the things of Christ. Ephesians 5.27 says, so that he might present her to himself in splendor, without spot or without wrinkle. The church is kept safe by Christ for Christ. By Christ for Christ. Let's look at verse 2 very quickly. This is this kind of a standard Hebrew greeting, but there's a twist here. Now understand in the, in, in the New Testament, and, and much more than the Old Testament, but the New Testament, there is an economy of words. Hardly is a word wasted. And, and in the language that the New Testament was written, Koine Greek, it is very, it, it's the perfect language to communicate the subtleties of what is going on because of the endings and all the things that go on here. So, so look at here. Verse 2, May mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you, short and sweet. What's the song that we sing? Seek ye first the kingdom of God. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. I have to sing it or I won't remember it. And his righteousness and all these things shall be added unto you. That's the normal way that we look at things, that they will be added unto you. So let's look, and, and you know, I'm, a, I'm kind of an abstract theological guy. I, I don't do much math, but I can do this math. 2 plus 2 is 4. 4 plus 4 is 8. 8 plus 8 is 16. 16 plus 16 is 32, without a calculator. I did write it down. I, I think I, 2 times 2 is 4. 4 times 4 is 16. 16 times 16 is 256. 256 times 256, and I did write this down, is 65,536. Now, I don't know about you, but when it comes to mercy and peace and love, I would rather have it multiplied unto me rather than just added unto me. What do you think? I mean, multiplication really expands things, doesn't it? So why does Jude use multiply here instead of added? I don't know, but he does. 
So we have to take it for what it is. May it be multiplied unto you. Not just given, not just added, but multiplied. So let's continue and look at a couple other big things that influences Jude's writing in this epistle at this time. Now, I hope you understand that in the larger picture, there is a battle going on. There has been a battle going on, and and we'll address this, at the fall of Satan since that moment when he fell from heaven. And that's referenced back in Isaiah. When we get there, we'll, we'll study that in depth. There is a battle that has been going on between Satan and our Heavenly Father. Satan hates the things of Christ. He hates the things of our Heavenly Father. If you ever want to read a a very fascinating uh, take on this, just read the screw tape letters from C.S. Lewis. He calls God the enemy. He is the enemy. What can we do to disrupt the works of the enemy? Well, there is a battle going on, and Satan employs both demons and men and women in this battle. And some of the men and women that he employs in this battle are present within the church. Now, remember last week, we looked at the doctrine of the church just briefly in that crash course on doctrine, and there is the visible and there is the invisible church. The visible church are those people that we see in the pews. The invisible church are those whose lives have been changed by Christ. Satan is using people who are part of the visible but not invisible church to disrupt the things of God and to attempt to destroy the things of the church. And often, the greatest assault on the church comes from within the church. Now, there are plenty of assaults that come from outside, and and we'll take time and look at some of those. But there are assaults on the church and on the truth and on the gospel of Jesus Christ that come from within the bounds of the church. Now, there's a prominent TV preacher who has taught off and on over the last 20 years that there are nine people within the person of the Trinity. I want you to dig through Scripture this week and see if you can come up with nine people in the person of the Trinity. Trinity usually means what? Three. Okay, three. Uh, so, so there's that. Uh, I, have, I have friends who still teach, and we're, you know, we're 50 years old. They still teach that you have to speak in tongues to be saved. That you have to. And they look at me and say, well, Randy, it'll come to you. Like, so I'm, if I die now, I'm toast? Mm, that's what they say. Okay. Oh, let's look at verse 4. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed. Certain persons have crept in unnoticed. Okay? These are men and women, what's it say? Who, who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation. Ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and den- deny our only master. Okay, they're on the inside. They're deadly and dangerous because they bring this devastating corruption from within the church. From within the church. Certainly false teaching comes from outside the church as well. 2 Corinthians chapter 10 talks about every speculation, every idea, every ideology, every theology, every religion, every philosophy, every viewpoint that is raised against the knowledge of God. This is speculation. The spiritual war will last until Christ returns. It began long ago, and it will end when Christ returns. And so the call comes to us in verse 3. Look at verse 3. Beloved, and this is, this is 
This is a special word. This is a word to believers. This is a name that believers call others, beloved. While I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, Jude says, I had all these plans to write this great letter to you. And it was going to be a letter about how Christ is good to us and and, and the common salvation that we have and all these works of grace and mercy in our lives. He says, I felt it necessary This is a spirit-led necessary because we trust this is inspired by the Holy Spirit. I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. Contend earnestly for the faith. This is a very, very strong Greek verb. To agonize, to fight, to struggle, to battle, to give every effort in exertion to overcome. And in fact, in the Greek, there's a prefix that is added to it that makes it even stronger than the word itself. To struggle powerfully for the faith. I want you to contend earnestly. I want you to get down in the mud. I want you to wrestle. I want you to fight. I want you to battle for the faith of Jesus Christ that was given to you. Okay? He doesn't say just the faith that you have. He's talking about the faith that has been given to you. This is an objective truth that he is talking about here. The truth of Jesus Christ. The truth of Scripture. The true doctrine. Not what we feel about Christ. Not what, you know, I heard over here and I heard over here. It is what Christ has given to us. So he's not concerned about the truth in the way we feel about it. He is concerned about how you have been taught by the apostles. The real truth of Jesus Christ. Now, the truth of Jesus Christ is laid out for us throughout Scripture. John is adamant about how important the truth is. Paul taught the truth. James taught the truth. Peter taught the truth. Jesus was the truth. He was the way. He taught the truth. It goes throughout the entire New Testament. John says you've got to be aware of what the truth is. You've got to hold to the true doctrine of Jesus Christ. You have to live the truth. And you've got to do it faithfully until Jesus comes. And then Jude jumps in and says, don't expect it to be easy. Okay? The apostates are here. We will struggle for the rest of our lives. We will struggle for the rest of the life of the church until Christ returns. Matthew 24, Jesus at the Olivet Discourse says, There will come a time when there will be false Christ and false prophets will arise and show great signs and wonders to mislead even the elect if that was possible. So great signs and wonders will come about in an order, in an effort to mislead people away from Jesus Christ. Be aware of them. He says they're all around us. In the New Testament times, they were the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the rising up of these these Gnostic heresies. They can be very dangerous. They will say they represent me, but they do not represent Christ. They're there to lead us away from Christ. Acts chapter 20, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in amongst you. Paul is concerned about the church. He is concerned about their their adherence to the true word of God because the wolves will come and try to take you away. 2 Timothy chapter 3 says, realize that in these last days, difficult times will come, dangerous seasons. Men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable. The list goes on and on and on. It says they will hold to a form of godliness, though they will deny its power. 
They will hold to the form but deny the essence of the gospel. So not only does Paul warn about these things, but Peter warns about them in the whole of chapter 2 of his writing, chapter 3. 1 John 4, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits. Revelations chapter 2 and 3, Peter says false teachers are coming, and they're going to come even more. There will be heresies, they will deny the Lord. It's, It's just full of these warnings. And Jude says, it's time. You've been warned that they're coming, they are here presently and he defines it and calls us to a battle that will stretch for the rest of our lives and for the rest of the life of the church until Christ returns. John says you're going to have to love the truth. You're going to have to test the spirits. Remember the question Jesus asks. He says when the son of man returns will he find faith? There are forces in the world that want him to find no faith in the church. There are forces that want him to find a weak church, a church that follows things willy-nilly and is not concerned about the objective truth of the gospel. And the longer that Christianity exists, the more potential there is for corruption. It's the people, okay? It's our sinful hearts that are the problem. And whether you're talking about the ones who still feel they have to work their way into God's righteousness, like the Pharisees of the first century, or those who of our day will take uh, license with the things of grace and say, I don't have to conform anything, any part of my life to, to God's word because he gives me this grace. Or those who believe under the broad title of liberal theology, everywhere from things like the Jesus Seminar to the social gospel to liberation theology to black liberation theology. The list goes on and on and on in our world and even in our church today. And Jude says, you don't have to wait for it. It's already here. And we will see in this book that it is here and we will wrestle with it. So we have to be ready to defend the objective truth that comes from our Lord, the things that we find here in his word. So as we study for the next couple weeks the book of Jude, might the Lord bring his understanding upon us. Let's pray. Lord, in your mercy, you have provided these things for us so that we might be ready in this moment and in this life and in the moments to come, ready to defend what it is that we believe ready to take hold of the objective truth of God's word, that truth that has been delivered for us throughout the generations, that truth which is inspired by the Holy Spirit, it is exactly what you want us to have, that we might defend it and live it in the face of those who want to proclaim false things, want us to take it and use it as license to, to live any way we want and just say, well, I'm saved, I, it doesn't matter, I can go do what I want. Or those who want to make it into such a, a legalistic doctrine that we can never fulfill every jot and tittle that's there. Lord, your word is for us. It is for this world that is so hungry for truth, that looks in so many places, that spins its wheels and spends its energy seeking after that which can only be found through Jesus Christ. So as we study, Lord, help us defend what is right and share that truth of Jesus Christ. For we ask in his name, amen.
Our hymn is 617, Onward Christian Soldiers. Let's stand as we sing, 617. Yeah. 
now march into the work that Christ has called us to because he goes before us and prepares the way for us. He empowers us, enables us to do all that he calls us to do. Heavenly Father, make our eyes see this road laid before us, that we would walk in confidence knowing the power and the grace and the mercy that has been multiplied to us and that is available to us to do the things that you call us to do. All this we ask in Christ's name. Amen.